0: Welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, Deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I am your host, Kelly Deutsch. And today, we start season four of the podcast, and I can't think of a better way to do so than with our guest, Carl McCollman, because Carl here has been in the spiritual wanderlust vibe for decades. He is a contemplative teacher, a writer, retreat leader, and spiritual director. And while Christian himself, he also finds himself drawn to all of those juicy intersections with Buddhism and pagan traditions, along with mystical Christianity. And his books include An Invitation to Celtic Wisdom, Befriending Silence, Answering the Contemplative Call, and Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. One of his most popular books, called The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, is going to be released in its second edition this summer. Carl and his wife live in Georgia, where he is a lay member of a Trappist community, the same kind of religious community that Thomas Merton was a part of. So welcome, Carl. We are so delighted to have you.
1: Oh, it's a joy to be here, Kelly. Thank you,
0: yeah. I wanted to first ask before we get into like your book and mysticism and all of that, is why the Trappists? Like was that inspired by Thomas Merton? What led you there and and what does it mean to be a lay member?
1: Yes. um, yeah, I'm not technically a member of the monastery, but I am a member of what's called a lay Cistercian community. The um, yeah, it, it was kind of just the way the the dice of my life rolled. Um, Reading Thomas Merton in grad school, of course, really opened up um, contemporary contemplative spirituality. I'll backtrack and say I read Evelyn Underhill right after graduating from high school. And so she was my doorway into the world of contemplative or mystical Christianity. But of course, Evelyn Underhill died in 1941 and she's writing about the history, you know, uh, Julian of Norwich, John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart—you know the great mystics of the past—and so when I read her, you know, that was one of the questions: was, well, are there still mystics? Are there any out there? You know, where, where, where are the mystics in their natural habitat? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think I was in—I was an undergraduate, and I was reading something about Catholic spirituality, and and whatever—I can't even remember what it was I was reading, but but the author refers to the contemporary mystic Thomas Merton. And boy, my antenna just <laughs> popped right up, you know. And I was like, there's a, there's a contemporary mystic. So I uh, talked to a professor of mine. I, I wasn't quite a religion minor, but I hung out in the religion department a lot. Talked with a professor of mine and he was like, oh yeah, you need to read The Seven Story Mountain. And it was so cute. He said, but I'll warn you, you'll read that book and you'll want to run off and become a monk. So um, so I read the book. I did not run off to become a monk, although I, I thought it could have been cool. And, um, and that just began really a lifelong interest, in, not only in contemplative Christianity, uh, Catholic mm. contemplation, but also the Cistercians of the Trappist. Uh, living as I do in the Southeast, I had a spiritual director years ago who said to me, well, you need to make a retreat with the Trappists. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, where are the Trappists? And he said, well, they're in Conyers, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that's not very far, you know? And so I um, I made my first retreat with the monks about 30 years ago, I guess. And um, and then kind of, you know, I was a spiritual wanderlust. I was a wanderer, you know, uh, eventually kind of cycled back into the Trappist world about twenty years ago, eighteen or 20 years ago, and at that time I actually got a job working at the monastery. Mm. and so I worked for the monks for about eight years uh, in their in their gift shop. It was nothing fancy. you know I ran a cash register and ordered books, you know, which is kind of a sweet job. you know, and got to hang out with monks, which was the real the real mm. treasure and um and then, gosh, two or three years into that, one of the monks just came into my office one day and he said, "Why don't you become a lay Cistercian?" And I said, I don't know that I have what it takes, you know, because to me it was like this elevated spiritual kind of a thing. And he said, as only a monk could and pull it off, he said, well, the only requirement is that you're a sinner. And I said, well, I, I, you know, not perfect. (laughs) You know, so I went to the discernment meetings and eventually just found that this was a wonderful place for me, me to grow spiritually. So and, you know, and of course, parallel to that is. So many contemporary authors, Thomas Keating, mm. uh, Basil Pennington, William Menninger, uh, you know, that there are the Trappistines like Gail Fitzpatrick or Miriam Pollard, you know, a lot of contemporary spiritual writers are either out of or, or in some way plugged into that whole world. So, um, you know, I eventually got involved with contemplative outreach, which has its roots mm. in the Cistercian tradition as well. So, so it's certainly not my, my only anchor, but it is a very important anchor for me. Yeah. And and the other thing I'll say is that the monks were very much my they were my first readers, especially with my mysticism book. Mm. And so while I can't I can't blame them for any of the mistakes in the book, I can certainly express a debt of gratitude for whatever wisdom might be in that book, because their guidance and their being in conversation with me really, you know, deepened my appreciation of the mystical tradition.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious about that because I think a lot of us who are in, who are interested in contemplative things um, often are fascinated by monasticism. And I know you're going to be giving a another class on, on Celtic monasticism uh, coming up here for our Celtic Spirituality School. But I, I'm curious what you learned, especially in those eight years of working with the monks, um, how we as lay people can apply some of those monastic principles to our lives, because especially Cistercians, like the Trappists are known for this, you know, silence and austerity. And I mean, they're pretty intense, you know, even for monks. And so I'm curious how we who live in a digital age, like you have a podcast and a blog and Patreon, you know, you have a digital presence, like how do you combine a very silent kind of contemplative sort of spirituality with a modern digital life?
1: Oh, it's, boy, how, how much time do we have? Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story, and I'm kind of telling on myself. Um, when my book on the, the, the Book of Christian Mysticism, when that came out, the first edition came out in 2010. And there was this monk, and he's still alive, although he's, he's well into his 90s now and unfortunately has some cognitive loss. But, um, but this was, you know, 13 years ago. His name was Father Tom, and Father Tom and I were buddies. And he worked in the in the bookstore like, like me. And so we really, you know, spent a lot of time together. And um, Tom, um, Tom asked me one day, even then he was in his 80s, and he was no longer driving. So he said to me, listen, I'm getting some stuff printed for us to sell in the bookshop. It was icons, actually, is these beautiful icons. And he said, would you be willing to drive me to the print shop? Because I need to pick them up. And I was like, I get to hang out with my favorite monk. Absolutely. I didn't realize that it was a setup. So so we get into the car and, and the print shop is actually about an hour from the monastery. So I basically have Father Tom to myself for two hours. And he's this wonderful, just fountain of wisdom. He, he entered the monastery in the 50s. So at that point, he'd been a monk 55 years, you know, just this amazing person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he didn't know Merton, but he corresponded with Merton, you know, so had, had those kinds of, kinds of, you know, monastic street cred. So we're driving along. And, and, and he just starts by praising me for my book. It was literally, I think, a month before or after the book was published. Mm-hmm. So the book was, you know, the ink had not dried yet. And so see, he's, just, he's just praising me. And I'm just kind of preening and just kind of, you know, my <laughs> ego is just getting all fluffed up. And then he starts talking about some authors he knew. And I'm not going to name names. Um, but people who I recognized. And he knew all of these people and he talked about how every one of them, he said, these guys got published and I saw their spiritual practice suffer. He said, it went to their heads. Suddenly mm. they were, you know, I was the expert. I was the master. I was the, you know, the, the, the bee's knees of, of, of spirituality. Mm. And I'm like, okay, Tom, why are you telling me all this? And he said, Well, I'm worried about you. And I said, I don't want to be the bee's knees. I just want to be Carl, you know, and all mm-hmm. that. And he's like, It will, it could sneak up on you if you're not careful. And I said, Well, how do I kind of inoculate myself hmm. against that? And this is what he said. And again, 13 years later, I still have not done this. He said, Normally, I instruct people who are serious lay people who are serious about a contemplative practice that they need to practice centering prayer 40 minutes a day
2: mm-hmm.
1: 20 in the morning 20 at night he said but if you're going to write a book about it then i think you need to sit for 2 hours a day mm-hmm. and all that preening just vanished and suddenly <laughs> i felt about this big and okay. this little person driving behind a steering wheel taking the monk <laughs> to the print shop and i said Tom, I don't have two hours to mm. get the silence. And then he said, Then you need to be reading fewer books. Uh-huh. And at at that point, I responded just with kind of just a gesture of humility. And I said, I'm not there yet. And 13 years later, I'm still not there. As as you can see, I mean, I, I my office is filled with books, and my Kindle is with books i'm a book addict you know hi my name is carl and i'm a bookaholic you know so um but but his point and i think this is, brings us back to your question his point is that our lives are shaped by what we give attention to
2: mm.
1: and nobody is perfect nobody is the buddha nobody is jesus we all get to be you get to be kelly i get to be carl in our messy imperfect glory
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. we waste time we 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 are less than mine it's just like eating you know we you know I had a salad for lunch but my wife and I are going to a movie this afternoon and I'll probably have movie popcorn you know it's it's funny it's actually our first movie in a movie theater since before the pandemic so it's oh, kind wow. of a big deal yeah yeah um it's it's it, we're going to see Suzume, which is a new anime. We we love anime, and it's a new anime movie. That's it's on the IMAX, and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, but um, so you know, so I, yes, I like to eat salads. I like to you know eat healthy, and occasionally I want movie popcorn or I want a yeah. Snickers mm-hmm. bar, and and that's the way we are with our time, isn't it? You know, sometimes I just got to watch kitty cat videos on YouTube. Yes, and um, you know, and sometimes. I need to sit and be silent and follow my breath. And um, and um, I'll just go ahead and say this. I, I do have a, a Dharma teacher and I, I work with a Cohen. So, mm-hmm. you know, working with my Cohen, mm-hmm. you know, or meditating, doing centering prayer, or, you know, again, reading sacred scripture or any of the things, the things that are kind of spiritually nourishing, spending time with my wife, going out and You know, doing something that is helpful for somebody who is in need, you know. There there are all these good ways we spend our time. and, um, And there's also ways that we don't spend our time well. So I think what the Cistercian would say to the lay person or to the digital native, you don't have to become a monk. But maybe you do need to be mindful about the choices you do make. Yes. And and I'll tell you, Kelly, you know, you go to the monastery and you, and the abbot has a cell phone, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so the reality is, is that monks are online. I mean, yeah. I know several monks who are bloggers, um, you know, a lot of monks who have Facebook, you know, and I, that may scandalize some people. But I think why would it scandalize anybody? The monks were always the communicators. Yeah. You know, they were the scribes. So, of course, the monks belong on social media. Um, And I hope that they bring some dignity and some, you know, some nobility of energy to that. But um, so they're struggling with these questions, too. Mm. Obviously, the difference is, is that they live in such a structured environment. You know, they know when they're praying. Whereas those of us who don't live in a cloister, we have to carve out the time for ourselves.
2: Yes. And I've had
1: more than one monk tell me, I don't envy lay people at all, because you have to really be intentional about your spiritual practice.
0: Yes, so, there's um, so much. I, I don't know if you know, I was in a religious community for a number of years. And it's so um, it's so interesting seeing how um, intentional i have to be about a rhythm of life now versus before when i was given structure and just, you know you're preparing for these vows of poverty chastity obedience i'm like okay i know exactly what it means to be a good sister you know like or at least i thought i did <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. and that made it so much easier because i'm like okay we do you know we have 4 hours of prayer each day it's just built in and even when i'd go home on a home visit and visit my family for a couple of weeks back in south dakota I still knew that like, this was my rule and this is what I'm dedicated to. Just as if, you know, I were a mother and I were taking care of kids, like that's my first priority. So even when I'm home, I have a very built-in structure Whereas now it's, uh, you have to be way more (laughs) intentional with that. And there's nobody helping you hold that container and the structure of it. Like it's really just your own discipline, which is not the most popular thing to talk about, you know, discipline and asceticism. And, you know, we like to talk about like the wonderful ecstatic parts of mysticism, Uh, but the, the difficulty and the kind of sometimes drudgery of the day to day when you really just don't feel like sitting still and being quiet you know or whatever your spiritual practice is that's hard
1: you know w- one of my spiritual practices obviously is writing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um I, there's a wonderful quote which i s- have seen attributed to william faulkner it you know it may be apocryphal but it's still it's a great quote and and the supposedly william faulkner said i only write when i'm inspired but I make a point to be inspired every morning at nine o'clock. Yep. And when, whenever I teach a writing class, I, you know, I always have a slide with that quote on it, because th- this is basically, you know, I say, look, you know, this is the myth of the artist mm. that we just, you know, we just wait to be inspired and um, that's not how it works. And so, you know, if if you want to be, um you know, Fran and I just saw our our favorite pianist, Ludovico Enaldi, who's who's from Italy, He's an amazing musician. You know, and, and he, here's this gifted pianist. He's probably, you know, in his late 60s now. So I'm sure he's been playing piano for 50 plus years.
2: Mm.
1: You know, he walks on the stage of the Fox Theater in downtown Atlanta and for two hours just makes magic and he makes it look like it's the easiest thing in the world. But, the, you know, and we're having a spiritual experience because the music is so beautiful. Yeah. But the reality is, is there were countless hours of scales and of learning, you know, I mean, I'm sure learning all the classics and, and working with teachers and, and then honing his craft as a composer.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, it's like this, this video that just came out, what, uh, the, the get back of the Beatles, you know, nine hours of the Beatles in the studio. And you have to be a hardcore Beatle fan to watch it. Because they're just kind of noodling around. But of course, the end result was Let It Be, which is this amazing album. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And that's, you know, another example to bring it back to the monastery. Everybody loves that Thomas Merton fell in love with everybody on the street corner. You know, he's on the street corner. He falls in love with everybody. He says, we're all walking around shining like the sun. There's this sacred, the virginal point within us, blah, 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 blah. I always like to point out to people, he does this after 15 years in the monastery, Mm -hmm. 15 years of getting up at 2.30 every morning and going and praying for several hours and then going out and working, Mm
2: -hmm. you know,
1: doing whatever his task was, which, I mean, eventually Merton's task was writing and teaching. But at first he was out there milking the cows with all the other guys,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and so, so you're right. It's this fiction we have, this kind of romantic, and I I, I use that in the kind of the French Revolution sense of the word, this romantic notion that life is just lived in the moment, and we don't need boundaries, we don't need chains, we just have to be present. And yet, it's like the great artists, they work hard to hone their craft yeah and so maybe the, maybe that drudgery that wrote the monk reciting the same prayers day in and day out maybe there's something to that
0: yes oh. absolutely it's it's hard to embrace that but i think it is so important because as as you're talking about here you know it's the practice is for something. It's not just about the practice itself as if that that's the end in itself. Like this is my time to be with the divine, but it's like practicing those scales so that we can have that same inner stance throughout life. You know, I like to call it the, the Marian stance, the fiat of just like accepting what is being given, whether that is, you know, drudgery and prayer or something ecstatic and wonderful, or just like it has been raining for three weeks solid in Oregon, and I'm just—I've had enough of it. <laughs> you know, like, okay, this is this is what I'm being given today, and I I can accept that. And sometimes it's way harder things than that. There are diagnoses and tragedies and all sorts of things. Um,
1: yeah, whatever's happening on the news. Yeah, you know, as as I've grown in my own spiritual life, one of the things that I've I've really come to see is that. Spirituality is always dynamic and it's mm-hmm. always relational. Mm-hmm. And so, whatever you're talking about, I mean, even if you're talking about having a mystical experience, you know, uh, Merton on the street corner, Merton on the street corner matters because Merton was a monk, because Merton was a writer, because Merton was able to reflect on what happened and then write beautifully about it. Because we can, you know, 60 years later, or however long it's been, 65 now, 65 years later, we can look at Merton's career and we can see how his writing changed. Mm. You know, his writing after The Street Corner becomes much more about social justice, much more about um, current events, about interfaith dialogue, you know, in conversation with D.T. Suzuki and other Buddhists a conversation with A.J. Must and Jim Forrest and other activists, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas before that, Merton was kind of your garden variety Catholic. You know, let's Hmm. let's, you know, pray the rosary and be, you know, be pious, you know, farmers. One monk once said to me, in fact, I think it was Father Tom said to me, we monks, we just were pious farmers. You know, like, okay, well, so there's a (laughs) level on which uh, there's nothing wrong with being pious farmers. But obviously Merton has that moment and, and it opens up for him. Mm. Um. and so so th- so the moment only exists in relationship to the rest of merton's life
2: mm-hmm. so
1: if you have a mystical experience or if you have a discipline even a boring oh do i have to do this again kind of a discipline and i think some teachers would say that's where the juice is yeah. is when you get to that point of oh i just don't want to do this and you do it anyways and it's like something deep inside you is is very is dynamic and is alive. And it's like the seeds are sprouting,
0: but you can't
1: see it. Yes.
0: Because I think such a core part of all of this is recognizing our own, our helplessness, our dependence and our radical vulnerability, you know? And I think that's such a core part. And when we do become these spiritual professionals, like Father Tom warned you about (laughs) like, careful when you start to think you're the master, like things can go South, you know? And so when we run into our own, just like, whether it is our unwillingness to do something or just frustration or whatever, it might be like, I can't pray. It's like, well, yeah. maybe you're not the one who needs to do the acting here. <laughs> you know? Like...
1: Well, as a writer, you know, maybe if, if I feel like I can't pray, then it's time to write about feeling like I can't pray,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which then pushes all those ego buttons. Ooh, I don't look like the expert anymore.
2: Yes.
0: Yes. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like what a great Whereas, practice for my own humility.
1: Yeah, exactly where mm-hmm. stepping into our own brokenness and our own vulnerability becomes the best gift that we can give each other. I mean even you you know you mentioned, you know, your your husband, you know, being in a marriage, you know, and for monks or nuns being in a community, the vulnerability that we bring to those most intimate relationships mm-hmm. strengthens those relationships. Absolutely, And it's so hard to do because we live in a culture that doesn't really equip us for that. We have to kind of find our own way.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah. Vulnerability is hard for most of us. And yet yes. we know well, that. And
1: especially, and, and let me be clear, I'm always conscious that I speak out of privilege, you know, as a white person and as somebody assigned male at birth and all that. Um, you know, people who have been traumatized in any way then that just makes the vulnerability so much harder and so you know there is this question about being vulnerable in a safe way you know finding a safe community finding a circle of care you know those 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 are important parts you know it's again it's backed it's always processed it's always relational it's not just like oh being vulnerable is good and being armored is bad sometimes being armored is what's called for
0: 100 but i think
1: I think where we get into trouble is if we think that's where I need to drop anchor. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, maybe not. You know, maybe there's some gifts over here too that when entered into in a healthy way and in a safe and a smart way is is just what we need to grow.
0: Yes, yes. I one of my core passions is just looking at the intersection between things like trauma emotional health and all of that and the spiritual life because that is such a um important but also um (laughs) rife with misconceptions um place you know where where it is easy to um you know either completely spiritually bypass and you know forget about all of the things that we kind of um, baptize and think are holy, like, look at me being such a holy person, praying my centering prayer, 20 minutes, twice a day. I am an expert, you know, and having somebody who's like, mm. <laughs> he might, might have a little, little some, sum you want to look at there, but also the, the really horrific tragedies and traumas that, that make us feel so um, uh, just constantly vigilant, you know, and that's, That's not when you want to just enter right into the vulnerability. You know, I mean, I I spoke with a woman who uh, was a Buddhist practitioner and then became a neuroscientist. So it was really interesting talking to her about how she just needed to stop her practice for three years because she was like, all of this came up and that was not the time for me to be like going deep within into the vulnerable places. And so I think that's, I mean, an important thing to be explored further um, by by both the scientific community and by contemplatives
1: yeah i'm I'm reminded of meister eckhart truth is such a noble thing that if i had to choose between truth and god i would let god go and you know to a lot of you know quote unquote christian people that sounds like heresy Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and yet i think it's speaking to what you were just speaking of with the the buddhist practitioner you know sometimes and And, in the writing world, we call it "Kill Your darlings." You know, sometimes mm-hmm. we have to kill our darlings. We have to literally let go of everything. Mm-hmm. So um
0: yes, yeah. yes i I wanted there's so many things that I want to ask you about, but i I wanted to shift for a little bit and talk about yeah. your big book of Christian mysticism because I know its second edition is going to be coming out. Is it this August? Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yes, yes.
0: So, I'm curious what led you to write a new edition and what surprised you in the process of doing so?
1: It's very embarrassing to talk about what led me to write it, but we've been talking about vulnerability, so here we go. Um, Not even two months after the book came out, two or three months, early on, I get an email from a reader. And the reader just says, you know, oh, I love the book, blah, 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 blah. But I'm surprised you didn't mention Howard Thurman. I live in Atlanta. Howard Thurman is interred at Morehouse College. Yeah. Of course, I knew who Howard Thurman was.
2: Mm.
1: It was my white privilege that literally allowed me to just slide over, mm. you know, and, and that, let me be blunt, my, and my internalized racism. That 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 allowed me to write a three hundred page book on Christian mysticism and not mention Howard Thurman once. I went and I I you know and immediately and pulled up the Kindle edition and did a word search and I was mortified. Mm. I was just absolutely mortified. And and I wrote back to the person and I said, I promise you, if there is ever a second edition of the book, Thurman will be mentioned because he deserves to be in this book. So I think that was when the the seed was first planted, and then. Um, then, um, I I don't know how long it was, but but a few years down the road. Uh, so this wasn't right away. But at some point, I was doing some work with the book. I was doing a retreat. I think what had happened was somebody asked me to do a retreat on the Jewish contribu- contribution to Christian mysticism. And I went and I looked at the book. I was like, well, what did I write about this? And I realized I had not written about the Jewish contribution. Interesting. Not at all. I, there was a section on the Greek contribution, but not on the Jewish. So those were the two, to me, the two serious flaws of the first edition of the book. And um, and so I, I, I approached the publisher as we were getting near to the, the 10th anniversary. And I said, hey, 10th anniversary is coming up. Let's Let's revise the book. And the book was in this kind of uncanny valley where it was selling enough copies to stay in print, but not enough copies for them to feel like they could justify investing in a second edition. So mm-hmm. I, I just, it was this kind of tug of war with my editor and um, with the original publisher. And then what happened was when he retired, he said, he knew I wanted to do this. And he said, listen, I can't, I can't get you a green light. Let me see if I can find the book, A New Home and he actually sold the rights of the big book of christian mysticism to the publisher that published my book Eternal Heart which is Broadleaf Books oh, so broadleaf books and they actually they bought 5 of my books i was really kind of thrilled but but with the understanding that i would revise the big book of christian mysticism so so that gift was given to me and it was right as the pandemic was kicking in mm. so i I've, i you know i've had a little bit of time to work on it um, of course, I I was I was writing Eternal Heart. So I had to get Eternal Heart written and edited and, and all that done. And that came out the summer of 21. So I've basically been working on it for a little less than two years now. And um, and so the book is now a hundred pages longer. It it's the it's I, I I jokingly call it the even bigger book of Christian mysticism. Okay. <laughs> Although um kind of following Merton and his seeds of contemplation, new seeds of contemplation, we're calling it the new big book of Christian mysticism. But t- so your 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 second question, what has surprised me the most? Um, you know, I, I think on the one hand, how much, even with those flaws that I've mentioned, and there certainly were other flaws with the book. And I, I literally, line by line, went through the entire book. It isn't, this isn't just, we took the book and we slapped a couple of extra chapters. The book is fully rewritten. Mm. Or or at least revised. Some chapters are just revised, some chapters completely rewritten, and of course, then some new chapters too. So um, so on the one hand, I was surprised by how much in the in the book I could see that I just wanted to do differently. Mm-hmm. And where I went with that was the grace of my growth, both spiritually and professionally as mm-hmm. a writer over the last mm-hmm. 12 or 13 years. I think it was Merton, and again, I, I I can't I can't quote chapter or verse, so maybe it was Merton, maybe it wasn't, but somebody out there, I, I think it was Merton, who said, "If you are not where the person you were ten years ago would think was a heretic." I then you're not growing book. spiritually. Yes. Isn't that a great line? And that brings me, and I, I I really want to touch on uh before before we're done, I want to touch on the book Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren. Because I'm <clears> reading <throat> that book right now and it's just, oh wow, what an amazing book. So I'd love to talk about that. But um, but this um so you know, so on the one hand, I was surprised by how much I had grown, which was a happy surprise. And then the other surprise was seeing that there was still so much in the book that that Still resonated with me, and mm. I still was very happy that you know I had you know again, kind of this I wrote that, wow, you know, I must have been you know, just really praying well that day because it it it's it's like it it teaches me, you know i mm. I, I think i, I think, again, the humility of being a writer is that you can learn from your own work. Mm. and I, and I know that sounds incredibly egotistical, and I don't mean it that way. I mean it in the humblest possible way that there's something about the creative act. And I don't think it's just writing. I think musicians, dancers, anybody, the creative act that I think at its best, it's like you're accessing, I don't know, a transpersonal dimension or a deep, you know, the subconscious, however you want to frame it, or, you know, the, the, the voice of God, however you want to frame it, you're accessing something that's bigger than you. Mm. And, um, you know, and I don't claim that just for myself. I think all artists, that's that's available to all artists, but it's certainly been my experience too. And so, um, and so, and I say that just with utter humility, you know, that um I, I'll read something I wrote 10 years ago and I'll just, I'll be blessed by it. And, I, and I'm like, wow, you know, I I I Julian of Norwich talks about this in her in her book. She talks about 20 years, you know, after 20 years, still learning from her visions. And um, you know. And and I don't think Julian sat still for 20 years, because I, I think she was certainly somebody who was growing like a weed.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: even with that, there was still this blessing that that came from something that happened to her 20 years earlier, you know, so
0: do, so. do you have an example of of each of those of one thing that you looked back and you're like, oh, I've definitely grown a bit since then. And also something like, you know what, that was actually insightful, wherever it came from, like, I need to think about that some more.
2: Well,
1: just off the top of my head, I I wasn't prepared for this. So I didn't have something kind of handy, but just off the top of my head, I would say certainly the book that came out in 2010, the language was very gendered, you know, it's definitely the boy God, Mm -hmm. you know, again, it was very white. Um, I think my, you know, my awareness of, you know, the privilege anchored in Eurocentrism was just not where it was today. and i I don't claim to be in any way, you know somebody who's fully conscious, you know I, I i I'm somebody who's trying to wake up, you know, by the grace of god um so so certainly seeing that trajectory and looking at what I wrote and kind of wincing, you know, when there's a lot of he pronouns for God and that kind of thing. But then an example of something that i I'm just the um, the chapter on paradox and it's the longest chapter in in both editions of the book, um, and and I I talk about thirty I think it's thirty different paradoxes, and it's interesting because I actually retired a couple of paradoxes and I brought a couple of new ones in, oh. so there's about maybe twenty seven paradoxes that are in both editions, but two or three I can't remember the exact count that are different in each book, and so but realizing that paradox is so important to my at least my cognitive understanding of mysticism you know i mean we have this whole thing in our culture head and heart um, or brian mclaren in his book he talks about head heart and gut Mm -hmm. and and i think sometimes in the spiritual world we tend to privilege heart over head. you know we talk about somebody stuck in their head we never say oh that person's stuck in their heart you know it's like if you're stuck in your heart way you know good for you but um you know so we kind of privilege that and and i certainly understand how intellectualizing can be a defense mechanism so so you know and i've 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 gone there before so i i get that too but i do think that that spirituality is really blossoming when head and heart are kind of dancing together you know and so so if the heart represents deep silence represents just pure love that can't be put into words
2: mm-hmm.
1: head represents the stories we tell. To It's like that's the chalice that holds the wine. Yes. And so, you know, we need stories to give shape to our lives. We need stories to give shape to our experience of meditation, to how we understand things like justice or practice or, you know, um, relationship, any of those kinds of things. It's, it's our stories that where we find meaning. So you take, for example, you know, Merton on the street corner. That's pure heart experience. But then Merton goes back to the monastery and he writes about it. He he gets his head involved. And the writing always represents a step away. It's mm-hmm. never the pure experience. But it's necessary because it's in the telling of the story that we then connect with each other. Yes. I could never get into Merton's heart, even if Merton were still alive. I mean, you know, he was... Let's say when I was six years old, you know, Merton died when I was eight. Let's say when I was six years old, um, I met Merton. I couldn't have crawled into his heart. The only way I would have ever known Merton's experience would have either had him tell me about it or for me to read about it. So the story is so essential. And the story belongs to language and that belongs to cognition. So language is not the enemy here, said the writer. (laughs) But language is inherently dualistic language always separates what is from what isn't, Mm -hmm. you know, to say this is a microphone is to say it's not an elephant. It's not, it's not a not microphone, you know, Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. so language always, so to say I'm having a mystical experience immediately steps away from the purity of the experience, which can't be put into words. Yes. So, um, so it's, we live in this paradox of the pure heart encounter and then stepping away from that to use our language to create an imperfect kind of like a photograph if you will an imperfect photograph an imperfect record then then we use that to connect with each other so
0: yes i think that's a helpful way of thinking about that because it is it is only through through our bodies and our minds mediating something that i can even know who you are. Like I can see the image of you on my screen. I can hear the thoughts and reflections that you're sharing. And this is how I get a little bit closer to the heart of who Carl McColeman is, you know? And so it's, it's, I think it is really beautiful and important to see how all of those fit together, um, that it isn't, yeah, just one primarily over the other. And I really enjoyed that chapter on paradoxes because you don't often see someone just like listing them out and for the head parts and all of us you know it's kind of helpful like oh okay yeah we you know we hear people talk about paradox but it's not like somebody hands you a list of 27 or 30 of them and says like here are a few of them here are a few like koans for you to chew on meditate upon and figure out how you can integrate the both and you know instead of either or so I, I really appreciated that.
1: And th- this is a wonderful point to, to bring up that book, Faith After Doubt, which um, which Brian McLaren wrote. And Brian, basically, I'm going to give away the book right now. But he basically says that, you know, you think about developmental models like James Fowler and his stages of faith or Teresa of Avila and the seven mansions in the castle or whatever. Well, Brian comes up with kind of a four-stage model. Mm-hmm. And he says that for for most people who are intentional about their faith, they will typically begin with kind of a simplicity, what we might think of as fundamentalism, kind of a very black and white, you know, I'm a Catholic, the Catholics, are, that's the one true church, and everybody else is in varying degrees of error, you know, or, or I'm a Bible-believing Christian, the Bible is the word of God, God said it, I read it, I believe it, that settles it, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is that, you know, sooner or later, Questions creep in sooner or later. Not everything adds up, and so what? What a lot of people will find is that out of simplicity, they'll move to what Brian calls complexity, and that's beginning to wrestle with the fact that things aren't just black and white. That the, that there are, you know, many colors here, and and so faith is less about kind of establishing certainty and more about. What works? What's effective? Mm. You know, I, I, you know, and this is where you find like a lot of the prosperity gospel people. You know, I follow Jesus and He's going to bless me, and I'm going to have, you know, have a good life, an abundant life. You know, that kind of thing. Well, sooner or later, that stops working too. You know, you're, you're you're saying, well, I believe the Bible, and then, but how do I make sense of the fact? that there are Buddhists out there and they are good and ethical people and they don't follow the Bible. Am I really going to say those people go to hell, you know, Mm. or whatever. That's just a simple example. And, and then oftentimes at that point, that's when doubt really kicks in and we move out of complexity to what Brian calls perplexity. Mm. And so perplexity is this place where kind of like the, the house of cards tumbles down. And, um, and I think the, re- the reason why I wanted to mention that, it was the, the, I think the, the paradox that's inherent in mystical spirituality is an invitation to begin to move out of, well, out of simplicity into complexity, but also out of complexity into perplexity. But the thing about perplexity is that eventually you have to doubt the doubt. Mm. And you come to recognize, well, you know, and I think this is where a lot of people in our culture are today, because because there's a pervasive cynicism in our culture. And I think that that at some point we have to doubt the doubt. We have to be cynical about the cynicism. And we have to say, where is this leading us to?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, is is it really the person who dies with the most toys wins? Because what is that doing to our environment? What is that mm-hmm. doing to to creating haves and haves nots in our culture, et cetera? And so it's out of that doubting the doubt that we move into the fourth stage, which Brian calls the harmony stage. Mm-hmm. And that's where we begin to say, how do we put all of these pieces together to create a more holistic model? And to use traditional kind of mystical language, that's the that's the non-dual, where mm-hmm. non-dual consciousness kicks in. So it's kind of like the simplicity model is extremely dualistic. Everything's black and white, heaven or hell, good or evil, saved or unsaved, you know, in, in grace or out of grace. And then and then we move to this, these intermediate stages where that model just keeps breaking down. And then we come to a second simplicity or a second innocence, where we realize that all the models are broken down and yet God is present in all of it. And mm-hmm. we, and we, we, we move to that place of harmony. So, so I, you know, obviously I just think it's a great book. So that's why I, you know, if you, if you'd interviewed me two weeks later, we'd be talking about whatever book I was reading then. (laughs) That's what I'm reading right
0: now. Um, When do you feel, or can you name a certain chapter in your life when you felt like you shifted from perhaps a perplexity to a harmony?
2: Oh,
1: I think I'm still working on it. Yeah. Um, And, 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 and Brian says this, he says, you know, we, most people, we kind of flow between them. Um, you know i i I would say I probably live you know and and it, but the reality is is you may be in it's at one level of consciousness with your spirituality and another level of consciousness with your politics or another level of consciousness 100%. with your finances mm-hmm. or, so 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 i I certainly know all four stages, you know, mm-hmm. so let' let's just put it that way um and I do think that um for me. I think really the puzzle of it's, I I would call it the Julian of Norwich puzzle, the puzzle of the all loving God who Mm -hmm. sends people to hell. It's like, and that's a Cohen, if you will, that's a Christian Cohen, Um, you know, and, and, and to just say, wait a minute, you know, the emperor has no clothes here. And when I, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Merton on the street corner. It wasn't like just this one moment. Sure. But, um, but I, I was wrestling with that mostly in my twenties. So that was, you know, I'm in my sixties now. So we're talking, you know, 35, 40 years ago. And I think, you know, and it was also then that I was first being introduced to what we now call centering prayer back then, which was called a Christian meditation. You know, I was, I was working with the Shalem Institute. I did my graduate studies in Northern Virginia. So I connected with Shalem. And um, and and I think it was just the, the combination of recognizing that, you know, what does what silence help us to see? Silence helps us to see that you can't always think your way out of a problem. You know, you can't always think your way out of a paradox. And, um, and so this paradox that God is infinite justice, that's what heaven and hell is all about. God is infinite justice. Mm. and god is infinite mercy it makes absolutely no sense to talk about god sending people to hell that just is that it's like Mm -hmm. that's bad grammar you know it's 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 fundamentally illogical and to hold both of those together then what what do you pop into you pop into a place where well they both are true they don't contradict each other but they do contradict each other and i can't figure it out so my heart is just going to be given over to love
2: mm.
1: so i i can't give you a date when that happens, sure but i would i say it's, it's more like a, a flower opening and truth be told i think the flower is still blossoming so yeah yeah, yeah
0: 35 absolutely. 40 years later so. yeah and I, I think that is an important point to um to make but also to reiterate like over and over and over is that each part inside of us can be at different stages of development. You know, I really love, I like to talk about internal family systems and, you know, we have all these parts inside of us and we have so many different parts, you know, we do have the parts that, you know, the one that's a perfectionist, the ones that's a people pleaser, the one that's, you know, a very spiritual part and feels very good about being a spiritual part. You know, we have all of these different parts that live inside of us and they are at different stages. And so, no person no human being in this lifetime is ever completely 100 percent realized conscious woke whatever you want to call it because we all have i mean ego doesn't die <laughs> you know like you can't kill it nor should it but it's um... you know
1: i i don't like true self all self language mm-hmm. and and the reason why i don't like it is because i think false self has its place Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that that there we need we need to negotiate this goes back to us talking earlier about being vulnerable and being armored the false self is the armored self
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now
1: um maybe sometimes the armored self gets out of whack and you have to reel it back a little but you know if if we're going to set up this true self false self we're setting up a dualism and and i'm like well you know if 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 god whatever god is created this this body this mechanism this body mind soul dynamic that one of the things we do is we armor ourselves and we we create ego constructs well rather than you know pooping all over it maybe we should ask well what's the purpose here maybe it, it has an evolutionary function you know mm-hmm. Exactly. So so that's that's why I don't particularly care for that language. But it's, you know, and again, God bless Tom Merton. You know, everybody uses that language now. Um, I I just it's funny. In one of my early books, I talk about the survival mind and the playful mind. Mm. And so, you know, now I I probably wouldn't use mind, but survival self and playful self. And I think Mm -hmm. that's just that's just a lot more helpful. You know, when I'm out driving in Atlanta traffic, survival self needs to be in charge you know, but when I'm sitting on the cushion, playful self needs to be in charge.
2: Yes. And,
1: and, and playful self knows how to be vulnerable. Playful self knows how to stand naked before the presence of divine love. Yes. Um, so, you know, so we live in a culture that privileges survival self mm. and almost sees playful self as something silly. So, um, of course that reminds me the word silly comes from the german word selig which means blessed so yeah you know the, the 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 playful self is silly in the best sense of the word but not yes. in a pejorative sense you know
0: yes so, yes that's
1: I, important you know whether you're talking about mysticism contemplation zen you know um therapy IFS, any of this kind of stuff, focusing, all of these modalities. What do they all eventually point towards? They point towards living well and and being healthy and being fully present, showing up in your body, um, showing up in your relationships, being able to deal with the crap that comes. And guess what? The crap comes in everybody's lives. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's something that Martin Laird says. After you're enlightened, you know. The, all hell still breaks loose. <laughs> yes. The Buddha still ate poison meat, you know. And then he was like, "Oh, I ate poison meat. I guess I'm gonna die now." You
0: <laughs> know. Yeah. It's just yeah. yeah, and life still unfolds in all of its mess and glory. Yeah, it really does. I I wanted trying to think about like how many questions I want to ask in the time that we have left. Let's go with. Okay. I want to ask a little bit about Zen, because I think that's something that people are intrigued by. And a lot of folks who have um, that deeper spiritual longing, who have a spiritual wanderlust often go East. And sometimes they don't um, recognize that there is a lot of that same overlap that they can find within the Christian mystical tradition as well. So I'm curious, first of all, how you... Um, first kind of stumbled upon Zen Buddhism, but also what you found to be some of the fruitful overlaps between that and and Christianity
1: well, and I I'm really still a beginner when it comes to my own relationship with the Dharma. Um, so I speak strictly as a student, strictly as a neophyte. but um but my earliest Christian teachers were came out of the shalem Institute, and the shalem Institute was founded by Tilden Edwards. After he spent several months studying Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. So it's kind of hard baked into me that Christian, mystical Christianity and the Dharma are, are friends. Mm. That there's a basic friendliness between them. And not all Christians necessarily see that. And and I I truth be told, I'm sure not all Buddhists see that either. And you know, that's that's the world we live in. Um But the, um, you know, but then, of course, reading Thomas Merton, reading William Johnston, um, Sarah Grant, um, you know, gosh, uh, Elaine McKynes, you know, there's so many names of of these Christians uh, who became Dharma practitioners, Robert Kennedy. And so just realizing that there really is this kind of subculture of contemplative Christians who, who are also followers of the Dharma on various levels, you know, you take... Somebody like a Paul Knitter or a Ruben Habito, who they're, I mean, well, Ruben is a Roshi. I mean, Ruben is, he has Dharma transmission, so he's authorized to teach. But he's also a former Jesuit, you know. And so, um, so you, you, you know, and Paul Knitter was he studied in the Vatican, Catholic theologian. Um, you know, and and I don't know what his Dharma status is, but I do know he's a practitioner. Hmm. in fact i think it was paul who from whom i learned the term dual practitioner you know this idea that that you can be a christian and a buddhist um or you can be a buddhist christian or you can be a christian buddhist i mean there's all these different layers many christians are just happy being christians but they like to read books by the dalai lama Mm
2: -hmm.
1: i think that's perfectly valid you know um and there are Christians who, they just want a Christian practice. And I respect that. My only request is don't make me wrong mm. because I want to go play with my friends in the East. you yeah. know. And so um, so it's, I, you know, I think, I, I talk about this in the new edition of the book. Mysticism is a story. This goes back to the head heart thing. Mysticism is a story. And so when you talk about something like, like Zen, you're talking about a different story from a different culture. Mm. So obviously there's there's different symbols, there's different language, there's some different philosophy, mm. there's some ways in which the two don't necessarily mesh well. You know, the cosmologies are different between Christianity and Buddhism. And so if you're gonna, if you're gonna explore both, you have to kind of ask, you know, well, can I live with that paradox, that ambiguity? Or am I really gonna drop anchor in one? and say that's really where i belong and i'm just going to learn what i can from the other you know there's there's no one right or it's, it's like kissing there's no right or wrong way to kiss the right way to kiss is both people are enjoying it you know <laughs> yes. but the you know the way you and your partner kiss and the way me and my partner kiss may be totally different and that's mm-hmm. great and i think it's the same thing with interfaith mm-hmm. interspiritual you know interreligious inter intercontemplative kind of work is Find what works, what what resonates with your heart. You know, be honest, tell the truth. You know, listen. Listen to where you're called. I think I think it's a movement. I'm going to speak like a Christian now. I think it is a movement of the Holy Spirit today that contemplative Christians are drawn to interfaith work
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it just keeps showing up. You know, and so if if your if your heart is being pulled that way, listen. Yes. be vulnerable with it, explore it, have fun, go on an adventure, find a teacher. It's not easy. I mean, the reality is, is if you're active in a church, and then you want to go get active in a in a sangha, that's a lot of time. It's kind of, you know, it's like polyamory, You mm-hmm. know, polyamory. I, and I'm not polyamorous, and I don't want to be judgmental. But to me, I look at it, and I'm like, where do you find the time? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Let alone the morality of it, you know. It's um a friend of mine who is polyamorous said that the mating call in polyamory is, "Hey, get out of your calendar." So, um, (laughs) oh gosh, yeah. I know. I think
0: that. So, so so they're
1: practical things.
0: Yes, yes, and that interspirituality is. It is. It's fruitful, and it's something to play with. That. I think one important thing to underline in all of that is that this is not some like new agey, newfangled thing. Like early church fathers, Thomas Aquinas, like some of the like key people in Christianity, loved interspirituality and learned. I mean, you go back all the way to Justin Martyr, and he talked about the logos spermaticoi, you know, and that's like what was he second century Christian? I don't even remember well, what year he
1: lived. Clement of Alexandria talking about, about the Greek pagan mysteries, you know? Yes. And, and, and that I mean, there is, and I know a lot of those people, they were still trying to sell, sell Jesus. Sure. I, okay. But that's where they were, but, but they didn't just demonize the other they were willing to be in conversation with. Yes. And, and I think that's what we have to really look at, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, so not every Christian feels called to interfaith work. And it's kind of like, if you're not called to it, don't do it. Sure. But if you do feel called to it, there are, there are people who are doing some of that same work. And it's just exciting to, it's exciting to explore, you know. Every time, it's funny, when I get, to, I, my, my spiritual director is, a, you know, she's a Catholic lay woman, works at a Jesuit retreat center. And we get together and we're talking and I start talking about, you know, what I'm doing with my Dharma teacher. And she's like, oh, there you go. Your face is lighting up again. You know, clearly I have a lot of joy in doing this kind of work. So, you know, especially in a Jesuit context, it's like, if it's giving you joy and it's making you free and it's helping you to draw closer to God, then it's something you need to lean into. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank God for Ignatius. <laughs> so my last question for you is like, what, what is giving you life? Presently, like springtime is just such a time of blooming and awakening. And I'm curious, what is awakening in you or what what you're sitting with, what you're pondering um, and what's giving you life?
1: Well. How do I answer this quickly? <laughs> Let's say, obviously, doing doing the Dharma work is mm-hmm. very you know, meaningful to me. The fact that I do have have a, a daily practice just continues to nurture me. Mm-hmm. Um, very excited about the new book coming up. My current project, and, and, and you know, I can say this because it could change, but the working title is Read the Bible Like a Mystic. And so, um, but it's really, it's evolving because... You know, I think when when I originally pitched the idea to my editor, I think I was like, well, we're going to look at what how Julian read the Bible and how Teresa read the Bible and how Eckhart read the Bible, blah, blah. And I, it's like, I don't want to write a book about the year 1350. I want to write a book about the year 2030.
2: Mm. You
1: know, so it's it's coming more into a question of what does it mean what are the best practices for a contemplative or mystical encounter with the text today? And so, so we'll see where this goes, you know, I'm I'm literally just, I've just, you know, I'm still in the, in the, you know, kind of first, second draft stage. So, so it, it could change a lot. The title could change, but that is, that's very exciting to me. I'm also, um, well, and I can go ahead and mention this to you. So I've got an essay coming out in a book that's being published in September. It's called Soul Food. And it's a, it's, it's a collection of essays to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Shalem Institute, which again mm-hmm. is where I first was introduced to contemplative Christianity. And so I don't know if you've had Carmen Acevedo Butcher on Not yet. this podcast, if you haven't get her on because she's just an she's an amazing person i'm i am the president of her fan club i just just think the world of her both personally and professionally well carmen last year i think it was last year maybe 18 months ago 12 18 months ago brought out a new edition of a new translation of the practice the presence of god by brother lawrence and of course carmen is famous for her luminous translation of the cloud of unknowing so so this this practice the presence. I was so excited. I love Brother Lawrence. I love Carmen acevedo Butcher. The publisher sent it to me to write a blurb for it. I I wrote a blurb for it. Well, Carmen uses the singular they pronouns for God. And and she makes the case in, in the introduction of the book, she says, okay, you don't have those pronouns in French, but it's clear that Brother Lawrence's, his own image of God is not a patriarchal image. So that is kind of her her thinking. And I'm somebody who is comfortable. I have non-binary friends, comfortable with the singular they. And I bumped up against that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I really had to sit with it and pray with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I should, I should, well, well let, let me tell the story of the essay. So, So I prayed about it. I thought about it. I looked at my own heart. And I realized that I was resisting that partially because of, I guess, my own kind of spiritual simplicity. You know, Mm -hmm. oh, God is a guy. And I know God is not a guy intellectually, but on a a heart level, I was still Mm -hmm. resisting it. Mm -hmm. And as I really prayed more and more about it, I had to come to grips with the fact that here I am in my early 60s. I was resisting my own gender diversity. Again, assigned male at birth, you know, in a a male body. But I'm, you know, what I would have always called, I'm an androgynous person. Mm. And, um, you know, and so I began to pray about, well, gee, am I non-binary? You know, am I gender fluid? And I think I am. Mm. So this essay, I basically, you know, it's kind of like, Again, I'm a guy in my 60s. Even the language, I'm a guy. You know, if I were 20 today, it would be a bigger deal. And maybe it is a bigger deal because maybe there needs to be more people in midlife who are owning up to the fact that our gender identity is not just what we were taught. Because mm. that's as I as I looked into this, I realized, you know, as a little child. I resisted the gender markers that my family gave me. Mm. But I had no language for that. You know, there was no language about being transgender or gender dysphoria or being gender queer, gender fluid, non-binary. That language didn't exist. There were boys and there were girls. Yeah. And if you were a boy who didn't fit into being a boy, that meant you were a sissy or a wuss or a wimp. It was all language of shame. And I basically carried that language with me for years. And so, of course, what did I do? I I tried to be a man's man except I'm not a man's man, you know? <laughs> so it just, it was a mess. Mm. So all of this is coming up for me as I'm reading this translation of Carmen Butcher, Carmen Assevier wow. Butcher. So I wrote this essay, and the essay is called God's Pronouns. And it's going to be in this, it, it was accepted <laughs> for this 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 anthology coming out in September called Soul Food. And, um, and everybody I've shared the essay with, has just they've loved it and so of course not only do i tell my story but i also say you know i have to affirm that i believe god is non-binary that non-binary is the best word to describe to describe who god is and so i know that's going to piss off a few people but hey why not you know life's too short i'm not going to (laughs) worry about that but all of this is a long-winded way of saying that i think my next book is going to have something to do with the mystery of gender
0: Mm. and
1: so um so we'll see but i got the bible book first so so check back and meet with me in a year or two we'll
0: yeah your... yeah sounds so those are the that sounds very fruitful give me the the buddha gender
1: <clears throat> and the bible and mysticism that's, that's I love what, that. rocks my world
0: so. that's a good podcast title <laughs> buddha bible and some gender that's wonderful and i appreciate you sharing Um, just your own story and your vulnerability because I, I think it is easy to share ideas on a podcast and it's not always easy to be as public with like here's my own personal grapplings like yeah I'm probably gender fluid like and that's okay like I that's something I can embrace in myself and any resistance that I have is something that I'm holding and sitting with and looking at and That's, I think, a wonderful thing for us all to consider. Yeah. Well, this has been such a joy having you on here and just walking through so many exciting and intriguing questions together. And I I would love our listeners to be able to dig deeper into your work. So where should they go if they want to learn more about you, your books, your work, and what you're up to?
1: Well, the books, wherever better Christian books are sold, but not just Christian books, because I've written some books that are more pagan-oriented as well. But um, obviously the easiest place online is my website, which comes from, and we haven't even talked about Celtic spirituality. That's right. I know
0: you're teaching and like very soon.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, the, um, so my website comes from a Gaelic word. It's the Gaelic word for soul friend, which is basically spiritual director anamkara and that's spelled and i spelled the scottish way not the irish way and it's a n a m c h a r a.com so anamkara.com that's you'll find my blog you'll find a, a you know a wee little e-commerce place to buy my books and of course just upcoming events uh both online and in person so so that's the best way to be in touch you can sign up for the email list and so forth if if you know for people who want to connect with me more directly i do have a patreon page as well and so obviously that's fee based but then i do i do zoom calls twice a month with my my supporters and they get some you know supporter exclusive work and that kind of stuff as well so that's another option that's,
0: that's another option. wonderful we'll we'll make sure to drop the link in the show notes yep. so folks can visit anamkara.com and and also anybody who wants to join us for your upcoming class on on celtic monasticism i'm very excited for that as well um, coming up here i think it's may 6th um, if I'm not mistaken, um, on a yes, Saturday, yeah, it's just a few weeks, so. yeah. yeah. So that'll that'll be wonderful as well, because i'm I know you have such a love for Celtic spirituality. And I think that is such a fruitful place where where Christian and pagan kind of intermingle. and And the Celts saw no problem with that. Mm-hmm. They saw a lot of um continuity and and commonality between the two. So I think that's going to be a fun, fun conversation.
1: Well, and to really crack the nut of Celtic Christianity, monasticism is the key. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what's going to be fun about the day we spend, you know, just looking at all of, all of the people we think of as the great Celtic saints, St. Saint Kevin, St. Bridget, St. Patrick, they were all monastic. So, you know, Brendan, the navigator, all of these people have this kind of monastic ethos. And so as as we as we dive into that, it just helps the Celtic tradition come alive in a new way.
0: Yes, yes, because it was so much the hub of, of daily life for the Celts since it was so rural. Yeah. I, I yeah. that's yeah, I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Good. Well, I so appreciate all of your stories today, and I'm so looking forward to talking again very shortly and hearing more about Celtic monasticism. So thank you again, Carl, for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on Spiritual Wanderlust. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving us a review or sharing it with others. It really does help us reach more kindred spirits who are hungry for the depths. To learn more about what we're up to, or to access our free resources for spiritual growth, visit us at www.spiritualwanderlust.org. May your days ahead be spacious, sprightly, and surprising. See you next time we